another edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast, where we'll be recapping ASU's 42 to 28 loss to number five USC. Surprisingly close, and our crew is excited to break it down. I'm your host, Ethan Tuttle. Joining me is Jake Seymour. Jake, how are you doing today? Doing good, Ethan. Doing good. We also have Noah Furtado, as always. Noah, how's your day going? Good. I think we're in um, peak Noah hours, if um, if I'm not mistaken. It's uh, 9.50 p.m. as we're recording this, so I'm good to go. Yeah, we're in your night owl uh, time frame. Chris Cartman is also on the uh, on the podcast. Chris, how are you doing? I made it. Still here, still kicking. Not probably not as alert as Noah, but uh, fully expected. That means that he's going to have some great things to say on the podcast. So um, I'm excited. All right, we're going to jump right into the analysis from this matchup. Noah, let's go over to you first. What are your biggest takeaways from this game against USC? You could tell that Kenny Dillingham understood the magnitude of the moment, having a sellout crowd, uh, the first of the season against one of the top teams in the nation, his first game as play caller. He really, I think, embraced that and um, understood that he needed to do as much as he could to keep that team competitive and give the fans a product that they could um, take promise away from. And I think he did just that. Um, he, he did recognize in hindsight uh, in his press conference earlier today, Monday, um, that there were some moments where that might have got the best of him, maybe getting a little bit too aggressive here and there. Uh, he didn't specify what that was, but um, he had an onside kick, um, surprise onside kick that he went through, um, didn't get that. Um, but overall, just the, the, the message that it sends when you're, when you're doing a pooch punt and then you do a fake pooch punt that converts a fourth down on your own side. Um, that's uh, That says something about you as a coach, I think. And um, fans, especially with all the families in attendance, they, they were there. And it set the stage for him to uh, not to make an example out of anything, but to essentially uh, show that he is capable of leading this team. And it's still early on in his debut season, but he's um, he's doing as much as he possibly can to push this program in the right direction. Jake, going over to you. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway from this game was it kind of reaffirmed the fact that ASU is a well-disciplined team. Uh, if you just go back to that Southern Utah game, they had nine penalties in that game, and now they've only had 19 since then. So this is a team that has kind of proved to be well-disciplined, especially against a team uh, like USC that is you know, going to be playing in a lot more of these marquee matches. You got to expect they'll probably be in the contention for the Pac-12 championship game and a marquee bowl game. And the fact that uh, almost a sold out Sunday, uh, Mountain America Stadium, excuse me, um, basically USC was, a- was able to have some of those procedural penalties early in the game and ASU didn't. I think that really is a testament uh, to how well coached ASU is. And Chris, jumping over to you. Well, I, I thought that the passion uh, was very there for ASU from the, the outset. Uh, there was an intensity. You could tell that guys were amped up to play this game. They were excited. And that's important from a standpoint of uh, coming off of a 28 nothing loss. You would naturally probably have some concerns if you're a fan or even somebody in the media watching this that they might start to dial it in, mail it in, pardon me, at a certain point in time. And because you, you get to a uh, postseason ban year and 
Um, the reality is the the messaging that and the call to action by Kane Dillingham is working because you see that the players were they were very engaged. They believed that they had a chance to win the game. They in fact did have a chance to win the game. They were down a touchdown with eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. They were a thirty-five point underdog. Everybody had written them off. Dillingham talked all week to them about don't even show up if you don't think that you have a chance to win the game, that we're trying to win. And uh, I think, you know, there was some media stuff. And then on the broadcast, you had the announcers sort of like compare that to Herm Edwards. I thought that was a little bit silly. Um, he's not trying to deliver a, a, a rhetorical message in that kind of a way. He's not trying to win some press conference or do the, the, the any sort of shtick. He was literally saying to his players, um, what are you doing? Why are you even out here? if you're just going to go through the motions and then go out there and be, you know, content with whatever happens. Um, and I just think from a, a, you're in this, you're in this season where you're trying to set a culture, you're trying to establish um, the, the, the habits and the routine that uh, eventually lead to success. He used the watering bamboo analogy and how it takes years of watering before anything happens. And then all of a sudden it sprouts and, like a lot of people would feel like that's just like some, you know, lip service or that's just like something that you say or whatever. But clearly to me, the players are, they're, they're buying into this. Like you don't go from a 20 to nothing loss to Fresno state who's going 28 points and being close against USC mid fourth quarter uh, the following week with as many injuries and other problems as they have, unless these guys are very invested and they're taking it seriously. And when you have no ability to go to a, to, to a bowl and you're probably looking at a losing season, I think that speaks volumes about um, the, the, the overall sort of state of the culture and the trajectory that that probably is going to be on. And I, I, I think that unless something changes, they're probably going to be able to continue with at least these very strong efforts and over time that can lead to success. And they're not, they're not ready to be uh, a, a team that's executing at a high level on a consistent base basis enough that they're going to be able to beat ranked teams. Um, you know, other than rarely might happen. Like it may, might steal a game or two this year, totally possible, but they're not going to consistently be able to do that but they can get a lot better still in a way that then benefits them into next year and really for the rest of their lives. And that's kind of what it's all about. Something that seemed to grow and get better and benefit this week was the play calling as Dillingham took over on that uh, offensively. How much do you guys contribute via, uh, the, the success of the offense to Dillingham taking over play calling? Um, and how did the offense perform overall in your eyes? Noah, let's go ahead and start with you. There was a mix. It was clearly um, a well-called game from him offensively. Uh, there was a sense that this unit, which really could not get much of anything going uh, in the previous game against Fresno State, had some rhythm to it. Um, they weren't perfect, and there were certainly missed opportunities but there were positives to take away from the performance. I think the reason I say there were other factors involved is because they were able to get uh, some traction on the ground. 
Um, Cameron Scadaboo had quite the game, uh, his first 100-yard performance on the ground this season. Uh, overall, I think the ASU averaged around 5.9 yards per carry, uh, which is tremendously higher than it was. I think it was closer to three. 3.2 maybe uh, against Fresno State. That really, I think, allowed them um, to find some sort of balance that allowed Drew Pine, um, although he struggled to some extent, to, to play off of that. Um, against USC, this this defense um, is kind of what you expect. Um, they came into this game allowing 152 rushing yards per game, so so – while it was promising in terms of a comparison from last week to this week, I think that's something that has to be baked into the equation. With that said, Dillingham clearly brought creativity uh, to the table. The, the trick plays, um, like we can't talk about the offense without talking about that. Cameron Scadaboo, I think he threw for like 40-some-odd yards, two for three on his completions and almost threw a touchdown that, that probably should have been. Uh, but he's not a quarterback. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, they had instances where, um, you know, he he put Pine in situations to make it easier on him. Um, he didn't necessarily make it easy on himself uh, at every turn, but he had uh, a pass even to, to Scadaboo where all he did, all he needed to do was get rid of the ball quickly, uh, got it to Scadaboo in space, and he made the rest happen on that very long 52-yard receiving touchdown. So um, I think uh, Dillingham clearly knew um, the strengths of his players, what, what to essentially call up in, a certain, uh, in certain situations. But he also, I think, tested them to a certain extent, um, experimented with certain things. And in, in his first game as play caller, that's, um, I think there's something to be said about that because of how you, know, you could want – to go about it conservatively, you could essentially um, try and, you know, do what is expected. But um, as Lincoln Riley sort of pointed out in some of, I saw his, some of his clips from pressers throughout the week uh, with the USC media, he, he, he expected Billingham uh, to, to bring everything possible uh, to, to, I guess, bring the best out of his players. And that's what I noticed uh, overall. You saw Elijah Badger, uh, catch a touchdown pass. Getting him involved is always great. Um, so they, they got him in space. Jalen Conyers, to a certain extent, he's he's always there as a reliable option. I think uh, it, it's to be seen the the extent to which uh, Dillingham will maximize his impact offensively. But I think uh, all of these things, these moving parts, um, they they can't fully be um, extracted the value of it without uh, a sort of stable quarterback situation and um at, at the moment drew pine uh has, has provided mixed results the, the touchdown to badger was probably his best pass of the game uh sort of back shoulder concept that um that dropped it right in where the cornerback wasn't ready for it it was a great pass but um he, he didn't have a great game by any means i i think that to a certain extent the 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 interception for sure uh and the you know the fumble. The, the turnovers have to um, have to be limited. There's there's a conversation to be had there. Um, I think it was they probably should have scored off of both of those, honestly. So 
they uh, Pine gave gave away opportunities, put the defense into some tough situations again uh, for a second consecutive week, which is not promising. But I think overall, when you look at this this team, they have, as Dillingham pointed out, they have things to work on, but things to keep them balanced with uh, with positive stuff. You know, it's it's it can't always be you know negative, and this is you're gonna have to work on this. They they have some sort of hope. Uh, when, when you can look at the film against USC. And that's the biggest thing I know is. Jake, over to you for your thoughts. Yeah, I think Dillingham called a good game just from schematically, right, when it comes to getting the right plays out um, and calling them at the right times. But I think the thing that kind of separated him and his play calling this game compared to the previous games that ASU's played this season is the fact that his tenacity to, to just be aggressive. Uh, if you go back and watch that game, there was, of course, they've just come in a theme throughout the season is that they've gone for it on fourth downs. Um, they've been kind of aggressive on theirs as well. This game, like Noah pointed out, there was so much changes, right? Scadaboo punted, and then he ended up throwing the ball, which ended up being his own decision that wasn't even, um, you know, Dillingham and didn't even know about uh, before he did it. So I think when you start to instill that kind of aggression into your scheme and into your players, all of a sudden the players start to act more aggressive. And when your players start to act more aggressive in a football game, obviously that can lead results. Uh, and when it comes to actually getting into that rhythm, if you just go back and look at that game, USC came out and they scored a touchdown and then on their first drive, and then ASU on their first offensive drive had a three and out. And I think everybody in the stadium at that point, I think it's fair to say that it was kind of the expectation at that point. That's how the first two drives were going to go for both sides. Then all of a sudden, uh, USC fumbles inside their own deep inside their own territory. ASU gets the ball inside the red zone, and they're able to convert on a touchdown. Now all of a sudden they're in business. You have Dillingham calling his plays and being really aggressive, and that I feel like kind of helps set them up for success throughout the entirety of that of for the rest of the game. Over to Chris to add on. Well, I think you have to look at the rhythm and sequencing of plays. I wrote uh, something uh, ahead of the game uh, about how the way that an offense is going to try to target a any sort of a defensive scheme is not going to change much from one play caller to another play caller on a team. But and so as an example against cover four, which USC runs a lot of cover four and man you're going to get a lot of opportunities to throw the ball into the flat, including to um, on screens and to your tight ends and stuff like that. So, but what, what matters really is that one play caller, he'll sequence these things differently and provide a different rhythm to these things. And that flow, that cadence was better with Dillingham than it was in prior weeks. And part of that maybe is the style that USC had, uh, plays defensively. It's not as aggressive attacking uh, with, with the secondary and with blitzing perimeter players and things of that nature. Um, but I, I, I think a lot of it is simply his feel, his situational feel for, for um, h- how to basically put drives together. And, um, and and I also think that the the they threw as many trick plays as you can imagine into a, a first conference game of the season, like the and, and and 
that the building in of these things or layering in of these things was uh, achievable based upon what they had done previously out of the Sparky formation, right? You had if Cameron Scadaboo's in the in the backfield and you're running him a whole bunch of times in the prior games, okay, now you're setting up him to throw the football, which he did, whatever three times or whatever it was in the game. I think that the the fake punt, there was an option to have a fake punt there. Otherwise, they wouldn't. They, the guys wouldn't have run the routes and all, and the blocking wouldn't have been what it was. I think it was that. And I watched the game back on 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 the TV copy. What I saw was Kane Dillingham one or two seconds before the snap was basically making a motion like don't like a regular punt, not trick play. And I think that was based upon the look that the defense gave. I think they were just evaluating the, the defense, but Scadaboo didn't wasn't looking at Dillingham, so it was like he decided on his own. Okay, I'm going to go with this. Here's what we're going to here's what I'm going to do. It wasn't like he decided to roll right on his own, and then Badger ran a freelance route to the middle of the field. That's where that's where it was open. So, but the throwback to Pine off the pitch, beautiful. The missed touchdown opportunity where Kaisen Brown and maybe didn't you know, uh, run as, as directly kind of had a little bit of a, of a shimmy that maybe was like, kind of, he was trying to set somebody up. It seemed like instead of just going. And then they had a, uh, sort of a communication about that after the play, it seemed like Scott thought he was going to just dart to where, to where the ball was thrown. But that was, that was, that was great. And even the, um, the sparky direct snap stuff where he ran the ball, they were very successful off of. Um, they even got an extra extra lineman out there blocking, and that stuff was was they were able to build upon what they had done in prior weeks as part of that. And uh, but at the same time, again, you go back to the sequencing of a lot of these things and the rhythm to it. They they also multiple times they ran Conyers uh, in these exit motions where he became a blocker, and then eventually he wasn't a blocker and he released down the field and they, and they, and they targeted him. Um, I, I just think that it must be said overall though, that ASU's offensive protections against a, a pretty good pass rush capability of USC and also it's quarterback play, which we're going to talk about even more in the next segment were inadequate to the ability to beat better teams like a USC. Um, there were, numerous instances of offensive linemen just getting mauled, being thrown to the ground, being totally dislodged within a second at the point of attack. Uh, every type of, of move imaginable. There was there was swim moves and rip moves and violent disengagement and and even even a guy like Lee Fautanu, who's been probably their most reliable offensive linemen to this point struggled at times uh, in this game. And that is made worse by having a quarterback who really needs a lot more time to process what he's saying. If blocking isn't great for Drew Pine, he is more challenged with a lot of concepts. Um, and also he missed uh, a touchdown throw to Elijah Badger, that was a perfect play call where it was a delay route 
that he ran um, diagonally across the formation and across the field, right in the line of vision, should have been a primary second, maybe the number two receiver in the uh, in the progression. I don't know how he didn't see that. And then he also threw a ball at the ankles of Jalen Conyers on a very great call of a tight end screen that was a jailbreak. And those those two misses in and of themselves were big. And then he also threw a very bad interception where a single high safety on the boundary side was coming over and made an easy interception that that he that Pine didn't see. So they're just too limited right now to on offense to not have uh, take advantage of all of these situations and also to not be able to get the ball out more quickly in recognition of their protection issues that exist up front. And they're going to need to get healthier, and they probably will in coming weeks, to try to lessen the severity of that challenge. And and most defenses aren't going to be as athletic also at the point of attack as the Trojans are. Fine quarterback the entire game on Saturday for the Sun Devils. He went 21 for 36 with 221 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. Of course, freshman Jaden Rashada is out after having a surgical procedure last Monday, but Kenny Dillingham did say that Trenton Borgay could be back this week. So what's your guys' assessment of where the quarterback room stands right now and who should be the guy this week for ASU, in your opinion? Noah, let's go ahead and start with you. We've yet to see where Trenton Borgay is really at. Dillingham said in his press conference that he should be back. He expects him to be back. Um, but we're going to have two practices in the next couple of days to um, further determine uh, where his health is at um, and to what extent he'll be ready to go against Cal. Uh, I think if he is healthy, um, for reasons that we've discussed many times on the podcast, uh, he should be given the start. Um, Drew Pine is just, I think, at this point, um, not the right quarterback behind this particular offensive line. Uh, that seems pretty clear to me. Um, Trenton showed, um, even throughout last year, that he's able to get the ball out quickly to process things quickly. He might not have, well, he, he doesn't necessarily have the same arm talent uh, as Pine. Pine showed that on a throat on the throat of Badger and even some others. But but overall, what this team needs on offense is stability. And they need someone who on the whole is going to get the ball to playmakers and limit turnovers. And that to say that, right, is to is to look at what Bourget has done uh, you know, not just this year but last year, because obviously on his second play he threw an interception. That was bad. Um, you know, but, but that play itself doesn't necessarily define him, uh, as a player and what we've seen him do, um, in practices and so on. So that's, you know, that's my take. That's my understanding of the situation at this point. Um, Jacob Conover got some reps we saw with the second team, uh, last week. He's, he's kind of just there. Um, it, it seems like he's going to need a lot more. Uh, development before he's he's ready to really 
50 significant time in competitive games. And, um, and, and so we'll see, we'll see where Borges at. Um, he may or may not. Uh, Dillingham wasn't explicitly clear on, on, you know, what he meant. He, he said he should be back. So, uh, you know, we can interpret that as him meaning get back to play back to the practices and, and such. So um, that's still a variable moving part that uh, we don't have locked down yet. Jake, let's go over to you. Yeah, I think anytime a player is coming back from injury, right, it's hard to necessarily say exactly how they're going to perform when they come back, right? It could be they come back and they pick up exactly where they left off. Maybe it takes them a few days to get adjusted. Maybe it takes a week, right? So I think it's, you know, necessarily it could be a little bit, uh, challenging to maybe predict exactly how he's going to react, how Trent's going to react when he returns to practice. But if you're going off of what Trent Trent Bourget has done uh, in last season and when he even had, uh, you know, in the preseason uh, competition, I think if you go and look at that, it's kind of the quarterback that ASU needs now, especially with all the injuries on that offensive line. Uh, this isn't a team that's going to be able to protect the quarterback for, you know, a prolonged period of time. Uh, it's going to be, getting the ball up quickly and getting out to his playmakers. And that's been the thing for ASU this season, right? Is that, you know, we've talked about it on this podcast and in our coverage is that this is a team that has a lot of talented pass catchers. And if you're able to get the ball out to them, out to your Elijah Badger, Xavier Guillory, Jalen Conyers, and all those players, if you get the ball to them, they're going to make a play. They're going to get out in the open field, make, make guys miss, um, and eventually move your way down the field. But the challenge is getting the ball to them. And when you can't get the ball to them, then that obviously creates problems and doesn't allow for them to make some of those plays. And with Trenton, I think he's going to be, have a better job of getting that ball out to them. And also, now that you have a little bit more of a passive game, it adds that layer to your to your offense, where now you're going to be able to run the ball maybe a little bit better uh, because you're keeping defenses guessing a little bit more than you were in prior weeks. Chris, let's have your thoughts. Yeah, I really feel like the way that things unfolded for this team made it very uh, disguised who should be the quarterback and when. And the reason I say that is in camp, ASU had Isaiah Glass, Emmett Boley was, was healthy. Cade Briggs was healthy. Uh, you know, they knew that Ramos had a broken finger by the middle of camp, but that was something that was going to be resolved within a few games. And I thought that when Pine got the hamstring injury, I think it was August 12th, the following week, Borgay uh, had a bad, a bad stretch of, of practices, including a really bad scrimmage. And it was kind of like, okay, you might as well go with Rashada because he's got this big play capability. And eventually he's going to be better than these other two quarterbacks. I think after – Everything that we've seen to this point is very obviously going to eventually be better than either of these other two quarterbacks. And yet then what happened was a bunch of guys got hurt. Um, and then it became more obvious that two things. One is that the protections weren't going to be there to really hold up against better, better defensive opponents and pass rushes such that it would allow Rashada to throw a lot of these big play opportunities. But even more importantly than that, that maybe the run game wouldn't set up such that they would be able to get teams 
to bite against a lot of the play action concepts that are required to get the ball down the field. And you kind of need both of those things to happen. And absent that, in consideration of their offensive line issues and the, the, the challenge that they had to run the football, I think that by um, certainly by early on in Fresno State, maybe even I kind of had a feeling by Oklahoma State that Trenton Bourget was probably going to end up being the best option for this team because he's the guy without a question who gets the ball out the most quickly and can operate a lot of their quick game to the highest degree that they, that they that's possible. He's also as accurate as if not more accurate than Drew Pine on a lot of that stuff. He doesn't offer quite as good a mobility and his arm is not quite as good, but it's not like Drew Pine has a great arm. He's not going to hit a lot of these bigger throws and he hasn't. Uh, I agree that the, the, the throw that was 30 to 35 yards in the air, that was a touchdown to Badger was his best throw of that game. But I think that I think that Borgay can make that throw, maybe not quite as easily, but I think he can. And, um, but again, this wasn't this was sort of disguised. The, the we didn't know about the injuries, we didn't know how Pine would look when he wasn't playing behind a great offensive line. I think it's very important. He was twenty three of twenty six against the same USC defense last year for over three hundred yards, and. Because he got hurt two weeks, less than two weeks into the start of preseason camp, and he had kind of been going on a on an uptick in the practices immediate kind of before then, that sort of masked uh, the challenges that he was that he ultimately demonstrated to have when a line isn't very good and protections didn't set up, and he had and he became a little bit more. Uh, I think I would say, you know, uh, uh, a diff- had a difficult time figuring out exactly what he should be doing from the pocket with some of the throws and or getting rid of the ball, avoiding sacks, scrambling correctly, throwing the ball away. Like he doesn't do very good at those things with a with below average protections, which ASU has right now. Now, if the team gets healthier, across the offensive front, which it, it probably will. I mean, we don't know exactly what will happen, but Isaiah Glass should come back. And uh, Ramos might get, you know, better now that he's able to use both of his hands. And Kate Briggs should be able to help, but they still are quite limited. Um, Bram Walden gave up pressures. Um, I, I feel like Sione Finau has been mediocre at best at left guard. It's been a problem. And so my view of this team at this point is that if Trenton Bourget is healthy or reasonably close to 100% even, that he is probably the best option for what they can and should do to try to have the most success, which involves as few negatives as possible, as many as high of a completion percentage as possible. It's unfortunate because you're not going to be able to take the maximum advantage of Elijah Badger and Xavier Guillory, or maybe even other guys on the team that have that big play capability. That's a disappointment that they have to swallow and accept because 
pursuing that is probably only going to make you worse as an offense in terms of what you actually can achieve. Uh, you can't like great be the enemy of good. And um, so I agree. We're not going to have to see what happens with uh, Borgay's health status. You don't want to roll him out there if he's not ready, but if he is close and, and by the way, Pine is also according to what Dillingham said, maybe a little bit worse for wear after the USC game. So we have to see about Pine's health status moving forward. Jacob Conover, I don't see him really as an option. I, I think that we are going to be looking for most of this season at either conversation between whether it should be Borgay or Pine, or what we'll see is Borgay becomes a starter and solidifies that role. I think it's going to be one of those two things. Well over the average of points allowed for ASU's defense this past weekend. Uh, most points allowed on the season to this point. Of course, it was one of the best teams in the country and the number one quarterback. So what was your assessment from Saturday for the Sun Devils defensively? Noah, we'll start with you there. Well, when we were previewing this matchup, we sort of set the benchmarks as 30 points being extremely good, uh, 40 points kind of being what was expected at the very least, and then 50 points maybe on the verge of, uh, of, of a poor, poor outing. Uh, USC's offense just had so many weapons, and you, and you still saw that on Saturday. It's just that I, it's hard for me to be super critical of this defense um, given some of the plays that we had seen. There are definitely uh, holes uh, to point out. The, the third and 20 just kind of sticks out of my mind. That, that's the biggest one. It was really early on in the game. They had momentum, could have got a stop, very quick stop on the first drive and was unable to because of soft zone coverage, as it seemed when I look back at the tape. Um, it's not like Caleb Williams scrambled out of the pocket really much at all. He sort of stood in there, waited for Branch to clear, Zachariah Branch, uh, freshman slot receiver to clear Jordan Clark on a sort of vertical concept. And Williams has the arm talent to, to zip it in there in between. I think there was like four ASU defenders, not within five to 10 feet of him. And then that converted uh, 20 plus yards. So that, that, that I think stood out to me. Uh, but there are other big plays that USC converted that I looked at and just sort of, uh, didn't have the same sort of negative reaction as as to, okay, ASU definitely should have had that uh, covered. Um, Williams, he, he, he's going to be the number one overall pick, or very likely, uh, in whatever draft he declares. He had that touchdown pass to Brennan Rice, wide open. I mean, you can only cover receivers for so long, um, and I wouldn't even say the defensive line was that was that disappointing. They were able to get some pressures. Had a couple of sacks, uh, which which to me was a little surprising. I didn't really expect them to to get uh, to be as successful in that department. I think a couple of sacks is pretty good, given how elusive Williams is in the pocket. Um, but I will say that, um, that even with the the ground game, Marsha, Marshawn Lloyd um, was elite, and Brian Ward teed it up. He said he's. He, from his view, uh, Lloyd was 
one of the best – it was the best running back that he's seen in the Pac-12 in the last two years. Um, it, it seemed on, like, every play he was bouncing out uh, for a big gain, averaged, like, 11 yards per carry. Um, but, but, again, these guys are so talented that it's, like, it's not so much that it's unexpected. So uh, expectations-wise, you know, they relatively performed average, I think. Um, there's still things to clean up. Um, but based on what we've seen from Brian Ward as play caller, the, some of the blitzes he's, he's been able to dial up the pressures, um, even against USC, I think there, there's still reason to be, um, reasonably, I guess, up about this unit. They, they've shown that against other teams, they can be good. Against USC, no, like few defenses, if at all, will, will actually look um, like they're executing at a high level. So that that's at least from where I'm sitting, uh, watching the game, watching the tape back. Uh, that that's as far as I can go in terms of really critiquing uh, the defense. And you know, against Cal, you know, we'll we'll see. It's in, it's essentially over over time we're going to be able to average out how this defense. Uh, is able to perform the true abilities and, and upside that, that it has. Jake, I'll send it over to you for your analysis. Yeah, I think the defense, you know, played well just considering who the opponent was. Caleb Williams, obviously the Heisman Trophy winner last season um, and hoping to, you know, go back to back and be the first uh, you know player to do so, um, you know, since the 70s. So I think when you just kind of look at that performance in a nutshell when it just comes to how are you against Caleb Williams? I think it was pretty solid. I was expecting Williams um, to kind of have uh, a really successful time being able to get out into the pocket and make some plays and extend plays. We did see him move a lot in the pocket. The play that stick out, sticks out to me, it was uh, late. I think it was about 10 minutes ago in the fourth quarter. Uh, Williams basically looked like a ballerina dancing in the pocket, spun around uh, from the left side to the right side of the pocket, and then aired out a pass. Uh, to Brendan Rice in the far corner of the end zone. I believe Shamari Simmons was in coverage on that play. That was one of the plays that stuck out to me when I saw it. I was like, this is why that's like the prime example of why Williams is so good. But the fact that that kind of a play like that only maybe happened a handful of times against a you know player that's that caliber was pretty impressive, I think, from the defensive line being able to keep that box and make sure they're keeping the quarterback uh contained a little bit. Uh, and then when it comes to just the run game, too, they they were, you know, Lloyd was very spectacular uh, in the run game. He had 154 yards on the ground um, and, you know, was able to break away for some really long gains uh, on some of those plays as well. So I think when you kind of boil it all up for the defense, this was an offense they were going against that averaged 55 points through three games, uh, through four games now, and they held them a two score, um, you know, possession underneath that. So when you look at the defense's performance from that perspective, I think it's you know fair to say that they played pretty well against a very talented uh, USC offense. Chris, going over to you. Uh, I, I think it was decent. Uh, you know, maybe 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 better than decent, but I don't think it was very good. Uh, when I watched the game back, I saw a lot of mistakes that um, in coverage, including some things that USC didn't really take full advantage of. I also thought that at the point of attack, USC got a lot of uh, movement at the line of scrimmage in the running game. That I was perplexed um, by somewhere in the third quarter that 
the Trojans weren't running the ball with Lynch more. He's getting at that point, like 11 yards a carry or something like that. I think I even said it like, didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And then he had like a big run right after that. Um, in fact, I quote tweeted Ryan Abraham who covers uh, Trojans for uscfootball.com, like perplexed. And then all of a sudden, you know, Lynch was out the gate on another one of his runs. Um, the, the, in addition to that third and 20, which was big, ASU was in cover three. USC ran uh, twins into the boundary. They occupied Torrance on the outside on the boundary. And then they ran a little skinny post to the number two receiver, which was, I think it was Branch, right? And uh, and and that created a little bit of a void where there was nobody. Uh, it was hard for Simmons, who was the, he has the middle third, well, they uh, USC also occupied him with the seamer on the other side, which made him a little bit slower to, to come over to that. So the biggest thing that happened on that play, I'm going to be writing this on um, the upon for the review, which is going to be up uh, by Tuesday morning, is was Jordan Clark didn't get a, a a bump on that route by Branch at the five yard mark. If you bump that route. He gave him a little bit of a left tap. Left tap. It was nothing. If you bump that route aggressively, it delays the entrance into that, such that it gives more time for Torrance or for Simmons to be able to come over to that ball. So that's 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 the thing. A lot of times people look at what where the ball ends up, but a lot of times it has more to do with what happened early on in the route that didn't go the way that it was supposed to. Um, and really, there were breakdowns uh, that. You look at USC's last two touchdowns. Uh, there was nobody in the corner of the end zone on one. Where receiver, receiver came all the way across the field. Shamari Simmons didn't identify that. And then on the play side, I think they were probably in cover three again. Uh, Torrance still has to have awareness of of what's what of depth into his zone, which uh, which he did, he appeared not to. USC tried to come back to the same concept as the first one that I described on the third and twenty. Later on, ASU played man. And uh, did did a little bit better, of a better job, but, but that but that's difficult. I felt like at the point of attack they did generate pretty good pressure and uh, a reasonably decent job of affecting Caleb Williams. He's just so good that it's really hard. Um, I think uh, po- on the positive side, Ro Torrance had a his best game of the year, and they played him a lot more in bump technique at the line of scrimmage where he always has talked about wanting to get his hands on guys. And I think that that enabled him to have a better game in this, in this one ASU missed opportunities on the other side of the field with D Ford. He had a ball bounce off his shoulder. That was an important opportunity to have interception. He could have taken that one back to the house. Uh, he also gave up a, a, a pretty straightforward inside release that was a touchdown that was caught on him. And there were a couple other instances where I felt like his size was a little bit of a limiting factor in this game for the first time this season. Um, so for the, all these reasons, I feel like it still wasn't – Brian Ward's not going to be satisfied whatsoever with this performance by ASU's defense. He probably is going to come away with it thinking, man, there was a bunch of missed opportunities. And there was a bunch of things that guys could have and should have done better – and or calls that we could have gotten better. Um, and there's a lot more work to be done in order to truly be a very good defense. They have 
a lot of the pieces that can maybe enable them to become a good to a very good defense. And clearly they're better than their offense, but they're still not up to par with what I think uh, their leader expects of them this season. Just to point this out real quick, uh, I don't know if anyone else caught it. Uh, Chris, you referred to Lloyd as Lynch to remind you of Marshawn Lynch. <laughs> yes. Marshawn Lynch, maybe a little bit. Sorry, I you know when you when you when when you hear when a guy's name is Marshawn, it automatically kind of maybe there's not a lot of Marshawns, and he's a, who's a running back. So, so I apologize because <laughs> Marshawn Lloyd is very good in his own right, and he didn't deserve that. But uh, that that was the reason that that happened in my mind. Is you're so used to you know Marshawn Lynch. They're different styles of, of, of backs, by the way. But uh, Lloyd, super impressive. Should have given him the ball a lot more. We'll forgive you, Chris. Hopefully, Marshawn Lloyd will forgive you, too. Noah, you put it best on Twitter. Uh, Dillingham said the quiet part out loud on Saturday. Wins don't matter. It's about the daily growth. And now it's ASU's first time being 1-3 since the 65-66 season. But there was a proof of life, so... Do expectations change with the standard set in Tempe from Dillingham most recently? Uh, I'll let you go first, Noah. Well, I think the point was the expectations uh, didn't necessarily change at all. It was just a mat. Like he's he has been saying progress, improvement. He's been he's been emphasizing that day in and day out because when you're in the situation that he's in with a postseason ban being put on your program four days from the season opener when you have players dropping like flies, uh, you know, being added to this long list of injuries, you, you have to figure out ways to fire up your team in ways that are in some, are in some situation measurable, right? So practice to practice, you can come and huddle up and discuss what you accomplished that day and say like, he's done that every single day he comes, he says, it was a good day. It was a good offensive day. It was terrible. It was sloppy. He'll, he'll, he'll give them parameters essentially uh, day in and day out that stretch beyond just the games on Saturdays, whether they went won or lost, he'll, he'll bring in Brian Ward into the conversation. He said, how, how, how did you guys do on the defensive field? He'll, he'll say, he'll give his, evaluation so I think it's more of just um, he's been hinting at it along the way I think I think in just in terms of like keeping this mindset on the controllables and on the little things that um, that can be improved little gradually uh, week by week I just think that um, you know when you're starting a season right and and I think this was before the ban got put on them. You, you have to say certain things like, yeah, we're going to play to win. Uh, and, and all of these different things, like he said, we're going to play for the seniors. That's what what's on his mind. But I think over time he's gotten to the point where, where um, he, he's felt comfortable with, with trying to express where his program is at and explicitly saying that, I think to a certain extent gets everyone on the same page, not just internally, but for the fans and everyone who is following the program that saw him do what he did on Saturday and maybe a little bit more bought in than they were before. So that's 
how I'm sort of um, processing the the development of of Dillingham getting to this point where he can say like the wins at this point don't matter because even after the Oklahoma State game, he brought up something that uh, Mike Gundy, Oklahoma State coach who's been there forever, uh, told him as as a piece of advice. You know, what I mean, just uh, just keep going. You know, what I mean, don't. There's no need to be so reactionary to the wins or losses um, at, at this stage and get distracted from the ultimate goal, which is to push this program to a point where over time in two years, three years, four years, they can be in a position with, with the necessary personnel and with the culture, right, to, to have that personnel be developed and um, to, to be in a position to compete. Uh, not in the Pac-12 in the future, but in the Big 12, which is, you know, in an even bigger stage, arguably. So that's that's where I think this this team is at. It's not necessarily like a drastic change, but just um, from a perception standpoint, um, he let it out for everyone uh, to be known so that, you know, everyone understands how he's thinking about progress and, you know, that also gives the players some clarity about what they need to focus on consistently. And, and it, when you lose a game, there, there's certain – you're not going to feel good about it. He brought that up. He mentioned that. But this, this uh, collective mindset of progress is, is a way, I think, for him to indicate to his players that no matter if we lose – to some of the because they have some they have a tough schedule they're playing a lot of ranked opponents as we've uh, talked about and they're going to lose more games so to keep them steady on a track that is going to bring them to practices uh the next week fired up to to get better i think that that is the the function that he is is aiming for and he and he kind of got it after fresno state he said the offensive um, the offensive team meeting, the players showed up 10 minutes before ready to go. So th- these are positive signs that um, that indicate the direction, the trajectory, and, and, and that, you know, in, a, in the first year of a head coach, um, that's, that's really all you can ask for. And whatever you get as a byproduct of that in, in the short term is, is the cherry on top as far as wins. Jake, we'll go over to you. Yeah, I think when it comes when you go back and just think about Dillingham's tenure here so far at uh, at Arizona State, when you go back and look at it, the model that he's kind of had is competition and competing um, to the best of your ability, right? And in the preseason and before the bowl ban or the postseason ban, excuse me, was was implemented, it was competing to win games and getting Arizona State back uh, to bowl game eligibility, uh, winning a lot of Pac-12 games, and then eventually maybe putting themselves. Uh, into the conversation for, you know, conference championships again, right? That is That was the goal for Dillingham entering the season, is to always compete against opponents. I think now with the postseason ban and everything that's kind of surrounded this team with injuries, it's now that mind shift has now shifted to let's just compete and try and be better, the best version of us every single day. So in a way, instead of competing against the external factors and against their opponents, they're now competing against themselves. And it's how much can you take for the next day can you build upon that? Can you build upon a Tuesday practice on Wednesday? Can you build upon Wednesday on Thursday and so on and so forth all the way up to a game day? And that might be something that a lot of people would say is just kind of simple when it comes to just normal football teams on a regular in a re- normal regular season. But I think with Dillingham and his, you know, 
want to compete in everything and every aspect of life. It's almost like the game inside of a game. And when you kind of look at it from that perspective and you start to envision it into that way, it almost makes it um, a different challenge in a way to compete this season rather, uh, you know, compared to previous seasons or even future seasons in the Big 12 uh, for ASU and Dillingham. Chris, over to you for your thoughts. Well, look, I just think at the end of the day, the messaging that Dillingham is trying to impart upon his team are a lot of the same things that I try to teach you guys. And the things that I've been doing for a very long time in, in, in not saying like, it, it, I'm just saying that they're identifiable to me, right? They're things that you can relate to as the, 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 the strategies and techniques that are the most important things to impart on young people and to try to get them to understand the, uh, the 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 approach that you need to have to everything that you are uh, taking on in life that you care about. These guys aren't playing football because it's easy. This is hard. This is so freaking difficult. It it takes it it takes you summoning everything in you on a daily basis to do all these lifts and the nutritional training and get up to go to meetings and practices and then to watch film on your own and all these things. These guys are going to school. This is very difficult. The vast majority of them are never going to play professional sports. Most of them are making zero NIL dollars. They're doing this because they care about it at some level. It matters to them, right? So if that's the case, how much of yourself can you pour into it to to as a lesson for what you can accomplish and achieve in your lives. The vast majority of teams are never going to win enough games to go to play in a, the, the, the college football bowl playoff or the, the CFP college football playoff. They're never uh, going to win a championship. This team isn't going to win a championship. It can't. Right. But what are you trying to do? This is a microcosm of life. And that, message that that in the way that Dillingham puts that to his players it resonates with me I, I identify with that ability that strategy that approach and what has been missing at ASU I've covered every coach from Dirk Cutter to now I didn't get to cover Bruce Snyder but what I thought that Bruce Snyder had in that was that uh, that contributed to ASU's magical from 1996 season was between him and his and his between he and his staff members, they had a really good composition that pushed kids hard while also loving them up. You have to be able to tell them you care. You know the saying is, um, you know that you have to to uh, you know, basically get kids to understand that you care before they're going to give you all that they have, and. Um, the 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 last several coaches at ASU, they were. I said this previously. They were either f- far too much on the discipline side of things, where they didn't also connect with the players and get them to feel like that they were invested in them, and their lives and their success, or 
and that was like the Todd Graham, uh, uh, Todd Graham of the world. Dirk Cutter was sort of more like that. And then you had on the very opposite end of the spectrum, you had the extreme players coach who were not really attention to detail people or discipline people, Dennis Erickson and Herm Edwards. And the reason that Dillingham, one of many reasons that Dillingham is, I think, quite different than what we've seen is paradigm shift at ASU that is new in this century of uh, of ASU football is that the players like him. They we see them coming off the field. They joke with him. They they they. There's an engagement there, like it. And 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 at the same time, he'll yell at them and he'll tell them that they're not being that they're not try, working hard enough. That they're not good enough. That their effort sucks. All of these things, right? There's respect and there's appreciation and there's an understanding that he's telling them things that are accurate and true and that they can identify as the facts of the situation. And there, so there is an authenticity to that that you can't fake. And circling back to my original thoughts at the outset of the podcast, you see that even on a one and three team, even on a team that got its teeth kicked in, first scoreless performance since 1988 at home. It was terrible. Six straight quarters and not scoring the football. And they came back, Dillingham said, in the, in the locker room afterward, he saw it in their eyes. They're invested. Monday, they show up 10 minutes early, all the whole offense for the first time all season. They, they, they're, it, it bothered them enough to make changes. Why did it bother them? Because his messaging and what they were, what the coaches were trying to get across resonated with them. That is the special sauce to success. That those, that is what makes the thing happen. And it's not going to get there overnight or in a week or even in a month or a year, probably. But if that stays the case, if he's able to continue to connect relate, push, motivate, he can have, he can accomplish and then sustain success at ASU football, particularly, and this is also really important. We're going to talk about this before we wrap up the podcast, particularly if he gets all of the things that he needs from the athletic department and the university and the community to be successful. Yeah, really well put, Chris. And it, it's, it takes a lot to make that special sauce. But like you said, when it, when it does come up, it, it really shows. And um, you know, the, the love like that is really important and on a coaching staff between the players. And before you go really quick, uh, you did write a column. Uh, I think it was earlier today when it came out to his title, the Dillingham shows ASU bosses, what accountability leadership look like. Could you just take us through um, that column that you wrote and everything that led to you writing it? Right. I just think that, the the contrast between Herm Edwards and Kenny Dillingham is dramatic in a lot of ways, and so it, so too is the contrast between Ray Anderson and Michael Crow's leadership of ASU athletics and Kenny Dillingham. And what I mean by that is, in sports, everybody knows. That, the, that people say, my bad, a lot. You make a mistake, my bad, right? 
when do Michael Crow and Ray Anderson and Herm Edwards ever do a my bad? When did they say, when have they ever said, you know what? I thought this was going to happen and it didn't and I was wrong. And the thing about Kane Dillingham is that he understands a person who's half of the age of these other people. He's 33, the youngest Division I coach in the country. He understands the value of accountability as a leader. I made a mistake. I did these things wrong. We didn't have as much success because of me. And I'll be honest with you. I feel like some of the things that he says, he doesn't even necessarily fully feel about like what went wrong on a play or something, right? Or like in a aspect of the game. But he's not going to sit up there and be like, yeah, our offensive lineman is, is pretty rough right now. Like we can't, we can't block anybody. You know, he's not going to be up there and say, man, our quarterback, he missed three touchdown throws in that game. Damn. And we would have won that game if this dude just hit open receivers. But I watch the game and I see those things. And I'm telling you guys, our whole audience, those things. But the dude has, he has, it's not just having class. It's a smart strategy. It's a strategy that leaders take. If I'm accountable and I take responsibility, then you guys who are underneath of me will, will see that, will understand that, will, will get that as the standard. They'll want to pursue that. They'll be able to follow that path. It's self, and, and, and just not to get too much on a tangent, guys, but in my opinion, the, the, one of the two most important things in life is self-actualization. It is the never-ending pursuit of trying to be the best version of yourself. And you will never get probably to where you want to be in that respect if you're honest with yourself about that. It is always going to be a struggle to maximize who you are to have great balance in your life, to achieve something at the very highest level, to have the type of relationships that you want with everybody, whatever it is. There's too many things in life that are challenges for you to be great at all of them and, and to understand yourself within that. And I just have so much respect for somebody who is willing to acknowledge their flaws, their mistakes, to consider the things that they could do differently and be better at. Because how do you improve without that? And what we've seen consistently from ASU's leadership, Michael Crow, Ray Anderson, Herm Edwards when he was the coach, was a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of shirking of the responsibility, a lot of, to my, to my mind, a lot of ego and arrogance. And I just think that that is such a, it's such a strong contrast to Dillingham and the ability to say, my bad, and to be responsible for the things that are under your purview when they don't go right. And it's just a shame. It's really a shame that Michael Crow, I didn't even include some of this in my column, but Michael Crow was on the radio months after ASU already knew about Herm Edwards' participation via a number of people that spoke with the NCAA investigators about the recruiting infractions. The ASU's compliance department knew this. 
uh, their, their, their legal counsel people knew this, their athletic director knew this. So Ray Anderson and or Jose Cardenas at the time, they should have been telling Crow this. So either, either he was derelict in that he didn't know and wasn't asking when, of course, he knew that these meetings were taking place. And then he said the things that he said, or he was um, dishonest when he goes on the radio and says, everybody who was a part of that's gone. And now we're moving forward. And the reality was he knew or should have known for sure. And we had already reported that Herm Edwards was directly involved in a participant in all of this. And Herm Edwards, when did he take any accountability? He, what he talked about in the, in the, in the, in the media was, you know, I, 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 I trusted people that worked for me. Give me a break. And, and Ray Anderson, he gave Herm Edwards four and a half million dollars when all of this stuff was already known to them. They could have fired him with cause, paid him nothing. They could have taken that four and a half million and they could have tried to do what Tennessee did in a worse infractions case that was of a similar mold to where they could have paid off that one year postseason ban. And it wouldn't have mattered maybe because they maybe wouldn't have been a six win team this season, but you don't know that. And everybody at ASU knew that this stuff was coming down the pike and they didn't deal with it appropriately last year because they were hoping that it was going to be different and they were emotionally invested and they didn't want to believe that the things that they had done that were wrong, that contributed to this big problem happening in ASU were as bad as they were or that they were responsible. And if they had done some of those things, it would have alerted to the mistakes. And maybe if Crow fires Ray Anderson, maybe that allows everybody to, to know that Cray admits that he was wrong about trusting Ray Anderson, about Herm. So these things are a complete absence of accountability and responsibility. And that is not acceptable. Guys, we live in a world in the media where if you make a mistake and you report something wrong, you should correct that. You should alert to that, right? And, and you should try to understand why you made that mistake, how that happened, what you need to do in order to be better. How do you get better if you don't process and understand and accept your mistakes? And so the reality as I see it is that Michael Crow has failed ASU athletics. Ray Anderson has no business being in charge of ASU athletics. How can anybody lead by Ray's example? What, what are you doing at the athletic department going, Raise a guy that we can rally around. He, that's the right approach and the energy that we want to have. No, but Kenny Dillingham is from what we've seen to this point. And he's, it's easy to say when somebody's winning, oh, they're a great coach and they're going to do a great job. I'm telling you when he's one in three that I see the things I didn't see in the last four coaching staffs. And maybe I'm going to be wrong and maybe we'll be talking about this in a few, pot, few years from now. But one of the things that's going to make Kenny Dillingham's job tougher is if Ray Anderson sticks around for the next two and a half years of his contract. Because guess what? A lot of people, they don't have confidence. They're not going to want to give their money. They're not going to want to invest to the degree that they otherwise would have if they felt better about the leadership. So really, there's about 5 million reasons 
that Ray Anderson is sticking around, in my, as I see it. And those, that's all money. That's the money that's owed to him on the remainder of his contract. I don't think that he's sticking around because he really thinks that it's in the best interest of ASU athletics. We, you conduct a poll online and 90-something percent of people think he should be gone. It's obvious. It is the number one thing that people ask me. Why is Ray Anderson still the athletic director? He should leave. Everything, things would get a lot better. That sometimes you have to think about what is in the best interest of the people that you're responsible for rather than yourself and your own ego or your pocketbook or whatever it is. So that's what led me to write that column. And uh, we're going to continue to do all of the stuff that we do at Sun Level Source moving forward because that's what ASU fans deserve. Absolutely. A lot for the audience to mull over. Thanks for the closing message, Chris. And a huge thank you to the listeners for joining us once again. The preview podcast for ASU's first road game of the season at Cal is on the way. That game will kick at noon on Pac-12. Until then, though, that'll do it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. For Noah Furtado, Jake Seymour, and Chris Cartman, I'm Ethan Tuttle saying thank you so much. We'll see you next time.